160 years ago on Christmas Day in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Henry Wasworth, Longfellow, took up his pen to express his heart. And his heart was heavy. It was filled with all kinds of emotions. About a month ago, his oldest son, Charlie, suffered a gun wound. The bullet nicked the spine, and he avoided paralysis by less than an inch. After that, two and a half years ago, Henry lost his wife to a fire accident. The flames also left him marks for life. So here was this 57-year-old widower on December 25th, 1863. And he wrote this poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And mild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. By the way, you can find this poem written into a hymn in your hymnal, Green Hymnal. Anyway, Henry Longfellow speaks like one of the psalmists of old. Brutally honest with his emotions, with his sorrow. He's living in a divided nation, torn apart in the middle of a civil war. Watching his son suffer, missing his dearly departed wife. So much hate in this world and Grief in his soul. How could he sing? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Yet he ends with this hope that all will be made right because God is alive and well. Now perhaps you'll find yourself contemplating life like this poet this season. Maybe you're just tired of seeing and hearing all the vitriol in politics and social media. Closer to home, maybe you've seen Divisions in your own family, among friends, maybe, yes, even churches. It's my prayer that you turn to God and find hope and join Him, as Longfellow did. Now, I can't speak for all the disunity and lack of peace on earth, but it's likely that as we continue 1 Corinthians today, the Lord will speak to you about how we in the church can endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, so last week we got through the conventional parts of Paul's letters, um, to the churches placed at the beginning, got the addresser, addressee, greetings, and introductory remarks, usually consisting of thanksgiving and sometimes a blessing. Now I forgot to mention that the sole exception is Galatians, which we actually studied in it, Paul skips over the thanksgiving, and instead of blessing, you see curses. And we knew right away that the Galatians were in trouble from the very beginning of that letter. Now with the Corinthians, Paul's not as rushed, and he does not start with the harsh tone. He's grateful for them, as you see in verses 4 to 9. But as we get into the body of the letter, starting at verse 10, there's no doubt this church has got issues. At the top of the list of issues is division. 
Now, it's interesting to me that with all their problems, sexual immorality, misuse of spiritual gifts, false teachings about the resurrection, Paul starts by pointing out disunity in this church. I think this topic is one reason why 1 Corinthians is so relatable to us churchgoers today. We're not even talking about divisions between churches. That's above my pay grade. That's for discussion another day. I'm talking about divisions within a single church. There's enough in one congregation to keep pastors, elders, and deacons, and leaders in anxiety during day and awake at night. And it's as if causes of splits are multiplying by the day under the headings of partiality and disputes over doubtful things. There's politics, celebrity pastors, worship wars. Pretty soon, we don't look that much different from the world with all its fractures, partisanship, and hostility. Now, we can try our best to prevent them all. We can settle for some lowest common denominator to keep everyone together. We can stick to utilitarian decisions that please the majority. That sounds nice and all, but whatever we decide to do, we have to go to God's Word. I believe and I pray that today's passage helps us, so let's turn now to 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I have baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ shall be made of no effect. So there's much work to be done to bring a local body of Christ into oneness. We can begin that effort with what I believe to be two principles. One, demand true unity under Christ's authority. That's verses 10 to 13. Demand true unity under Christ's authority. Two, accept the limits of human ability. Accept the limits of human ability. That's verses 14 to 17. The first, demand true unity under Christ's authority. Second, accept the limits of human ability. So if we read enough biographies, listen to enough speeches, or work under enough bosses, we know that some leaders are just better than others. So maybe their upbringing, the tone of voice, or eloquence, the looks, the charm, that's all part of the package. And it looks like some people have the complete package, right? 
God grants such natural gifts according to his common grace. And it's, I think it's easier to unite under such leaders. They seemingly command respect without explicitly demanding it. And as you all know by now, no one's going to mistake me for some alpha male or I'm not packing any top 10 or top 100 in the most influential person list, right? But that's okay. Our unity must be based on something greater than mere human authority. Paul could have said in verse 10, I demand unity from you because I'm older, I'm educated, I'm more experienced than you. Going a step further, he could have just said, look, I'm an apostle by the will of God. Listen to me. But much more effective is his approach to plead by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's reminding them that he's representing someone greater. The apostles appealing to a higher authority, the highest authority, as he pleads for unity. Now, Paul's been building up to this argument. This is the 10th reference to Christ in 10 verses, 9th instance of Jesus in the same span, and 6th time we see Christ Jesus attached to the Lord. It's He, Jesus, who has authority. Verses 2 to 3, it's Jesus whose name they called for salvation to be called saints and experience grace and peace. Verses 7 to 8, it is Jesus' second advent They're eagerly expecting, and whose judgment is final in the last day. Verse 9, it is Jesus with whom God the Father has called them into fellowship. Paul demands unity under Christ's authority. Next, Paul describes that unity under Jesus in three ways, and this shows you that it's true unity. One, we all speak the same thing. First, I mean, secondly, there's be no divisions among you. Three, you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. All three descriptions are essential, should be considered together. We cannot merely speak the same thing. I mean, we could practice repeatedly so that we recite the membership covenant or parts of the bylaws in one voice. We could improve our music skills so that we sing in perfect unison. But we have to go beyond that surface level. We must dig deeper, eliminate underlying schisms between relationships, go even deeper. Though we're imperfect individuals, try to be perfectly joined together. Not going to be easy, won't happen overnight, but the word demands true unity under Christ's authority. Upon you, the difficulty of uniting like this, unifying like this, we read in verse 11 that the report of Corinthians, this unity has reached his ears through those of Chloe's household. It's likely that Chloe was a wealthy Christian and her domestic servants disclosed to Paul the rising tensions and contentions of the church. And the news is ugly. As we'll see later in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, the things they said prove without doubt that how they're still baby Christians. No, they're still carnal, behaving like mere men. Now for a technical side note here, uh, maybe when Paul quotes the Corinthians as saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and maybe even I am of Cephas, he's concealing the names of the real culprits 
and faction leaders. I tend to think this is true based on chapter 4, verse 6. But whether this theory holds or not, whatever may be the names of the ringleaders, the Corinthians know exactly what Paul's talking about. And we know enough of what they're talking about, and actually we know well that it's ridiculous to say, I am of Christ, and then turn around to cause divisions, take an elitist attitude, right? form cliques, show partiality. And verse 13 shows why that's ridiculous. Paul asks three rhetorical questions. The answer to all three is an unequivocal and resounding no. It's like, maybe you guys can say no with me. It's like, is Christ divided? No, no. right? Now, a kingdom, a city, or a house may be divided against itself. Christ is not. There are many members in Christ, sure, but we're all baptized by one spirit into one body. There's one hope of our call. Through Jesus, Jews and Gentiles form a new creation, one new man. As a symbol of this unity, we partake in one bread of Holy Communion, as Paul talks about later in this this letter. Now let me treat the next two rhetorical questions together. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Jesus alone bore our sins, died for our sins according to scriptures, a curse for us on the tree. Christ stepped up to sacrifice himself when no one else would. Paul says elsewhere that scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But there's none righteous, no, not one. None who does good, no, not one. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, no one else who loved us, and gave himself for us. You'll never find a leader more humble than him, the one who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You see how uniting under Christ's authority is the best way. And once we give ourselves to Christ, once we're saved, we gratefully and publicly identify with him, and that's baptism, right? His death, burial, and resurrection through the act of baptism. Now, we don't identify with any other person and his or her works. So, let's demand true unity under Christ's authority. Now, what are some ways to apply this principle? And I'll just offer two. There are no doubt many. There's so many ways to try to strive for unity here, but I'll just, I'm just going to name two. One, get in the same room to get on the same page. So that's what I like to say. And two, celebrate our master more, celebrity pastors less. Now, first, when it comes to true unity, get in the same room to get on the same page. I'm saying something that's very elementary. I hope it doesn't seem like I'm patronizing you. But I'll say it straight, we need to meet regularly to build unity. And with all this talk of online and virtual church these days, with all the emphasis on convenience, I think we need to clear the fog here. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm thankful for technology. 
I'm not against certain forms of media and church ministry. But there's a real danger of falsely defining the word church. By doing so, many forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It's hard enough to follow 1 Corinthians 1.10 while meeting regularly. How much more difficult is it if we don't meet regularly in person with fellow believers in corporate settings? Second application, when it comes to Christ's authority, celebrate our master more, celebrity pastors less. Now, mind you, I say this carefully with great debt, personal debt owed to famous pastors in history. I'm grateful that God gives certain men to be amazing leaders. Right? And I try to read about them in history, church history. And I'm glad that their influence reaches far beyond their local congregations so that I can learn from them. John MacArthur, John Piper, Mark Dever, you know, these are pastors of pastors, true leaders of men. And those are just the ones that are alive. I mean, they're those whose influence stretches past their lifespans. John Calvin, John Owens, Charles Spurgeon, J.C. Rowe, that's just in the last 500 years. But these men, dead or alive, would be the first to reject the status of celebrity. They tell you to celebrate our master more, celebrity pastors less. If we ever foolishly put them on a pedestal and worship them, they might act like Paul and Barnabas and Lystra, tear their clothes, run into the multitude and cry out, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. Godly leaders want us to fall in love with Jesus, not fall in love with them or anyone else. So follow their lead. Celebrate our master more. Celebrity pastors less. Now Paul offers uh, immediate help in promoting this application right here in verses 14 to 17, which I think talks about accept the limits of human ability. Now in all of Paul's letters, there's no other place where there's such a high concentration of the word baptized. It's packed in a small group of verses we're talking about six times in five verses, in verses 13 to 17. It's as if the last rhetorical question in verse 13, were you baptized in the name of Paul, got Paul going in some kind of heated rant like for a few moments here. But it's a Holy Spirit-inspired rant, so there's much to learn here. Now, it's ironic with all these repeated mentions of baptism, we're at a passage that actually de-emphasizes baptism. Now, Paul's not saying we should stop baptizing. He's asking that we put it in its proper place. It's of secondary importance relative to the gospel. It's a sign of regeneration to be administered after you're saved. Baptism is not the means of regeneration to be saved. According to the Great Commission, it's part of the discipleship process, but it's not essential for salvation in Christ. Just ask that thief on the cross. Right? He was saved by faith. Right? And when bapti uh, baptism is correctly and biblically defined and practiced, everything's fine. But once it's unmoored from the safe harbors of sound doctrine, I think we're in trouble. 
We need passages like today's to get us back onto the shore. Now let's set the scene here with the little bit with the early church and baptism. We know that in Acts 2.41, it seems like baptism statistics connect with membership roles, and there's nothing wrong with that. They were keeping track of baptisms and said they added to the church. But in counting and tracking such numbers, we can easily distort them into some kind of performance, competitive sport. This was true even during Jesus' ministry, back in John 3 and 4. It seemed everyone but John the Baptist made a big deal about how there's increasingly more baptism under Jesus' ministry than his. No one was happier than John about that. He must increase, but I must decrease. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. John understood well the limits of human ability. We can make a big deal out of numbers and think it's about us and our ability. The Corinthians certainly did that. Maybe they thought, look, this leader is bringing many to the Lord and baptizing tons of people. There's got to be something about him, his charm, his looks, his speech, etc. I can understand the allures of such thinking. Imagine if you walk into a church and the pastor stands up before the congregation and say, I baptized all of you, or most of you, or hundreds of you. Pretty impressive, right? Well, contrary to expectations, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized only a few of you. What is going on? He reveals this to counter those who attribute numbers of conversions and baptisms to human ability. It turns out that it was not Paul's custom to baptize. The apostle has followed in the footsteps of Jesus who delegated it to his disciples as seen in John 4, 2. Paul focused on evangelism and preaching, probably training of leaders. Now, he did have to baptize a few at the early going in Corinth. Uh, There's Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. He was an early convert along with his household, as we see in Acts 18. Gaius, not to be confused with two or three other Gaiuses in the New Testament, was probably another early convert. The church met at his home. Later, he may have befriended John the Apostle as well. Um, Next, you get the sense that Paul's memory starts to get fuzzy after these two names. It's almost as if looks to the left and tilts his head and in verse 16. Oh yeah, I remember. I baptized the household of Stephanos. Now we'll talk about him and his family again towards the end of this letter. In chapter 16, you see they're among the first converts of Paul's ministry in Achaia, which is the region where Corinth located. And they were devoted to ministry as leaders and representatives of the Corinthian church. At any rate, moving on, besides Crispus, Gaius, and the household of Stephanas, Paul cannot recall any other baptisms he performed at Corinth. And that's okay. His main task in life was to go and preach the gospel to Gentiles and plant churches. His calling was not to stay and pastor local congregations. And so when many converted to Christ in Corinth, he established qualified leaders and allowed others to baptize. 
That's how Paul was able to focus on preaching Christ. And as he evangelized, he took care to leave the gospel unembellished. People of Paul's day, and really today too, you value artful use of words, eloquence, rhetoric that wows audiences, speeches that confound and persuade. But when it comes to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the apostle gave it to them straight. Had he added the wisdom of words, the message would have been about the messenger. Such performance would put the focus on Paul, his brilliance and intelligence, not the greatness of Jesus and his sacrifice. That's how the cross of Christ will be made of no effect. This is why it's comforting when someone tells me, oh, I'm not really good at speaking. I, you know, when I'm talking about the gospel or preaching, I'm like, good, you don't have to be. Right? Just if you know the gospel, if you can say it in words, you're able to preach or share the gospel. You don't need wisdom. You don't need a large vocabulary. If you quickly look ahead to chapter 2, 1 through 5, you see how he, Paul avoided that error of adding to the gospel. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It took deliberate planning on Paul's part, intentional restraint to preach the gospel as he did. It takes faith in God's unlimited power to accept the limits of human ability. We're going to dive deeper into this truth next time, but we should not depart from here without understanding the gospel and the glory of the cross of Christ. We must rehearse it. We should imitate Paul. We must preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ shall be made of no effect. And let's an interesting phrase there, the cross of Christ made of no effect. Right? I was thinking like, what is the opposite of Christ being empty of his significance? Jesus' death is filled with meaning once we admit our lives are filled with sin. We're filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. We're full of envy, Murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. This is apart from Christ, as we see in Romans 1. We rebelled against our holy creator, breaking his laws, lying, stealing, committing adultery and murder in our hearts. We refused to glorify God as God in idolatry. We made idols of mere men and their ability. We rightfully deserve God's wrath. Hell, eternity apart from the Lord. But that's where we feel the limits of human ability and turn to Jesus. That's where the power of man ends and the power of God to salvation, the gospel of Christ, shines forth. It's all about Jesus. God and man in one person born as a baby about 2,000 years ago. 
live a sinless life, then die for sinners. He went to the cross as our substitute, paying the penalty of our evil thoughts, words, and deeds. He did that with his own life. He rose again from the dead on the third day, ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. On that day, there will be peace, judgment, and justice that lasts for eternity. Unity in this world that we can't even imagine right now. Every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every creature in heaven on the earth saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb forever and ever. It's my hope that each and every one of us here and now, or maybe listening later, whatever, reading the Bible, enter the heavenly kingdom. To secure your place there, repent, turn from sin and self-righteousness. Stop relying on human performance or wisdom or ability. Trust in Jesus alone for eternal life. You cannot earn it or deserve it. It is God's gift. He saves us by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Make the decision before it's too late. Be reconciled to God and be united with this church, the bride of Christ. And so I hope that this Christmas season in our church, we can give the world a small glimpse and preview of what our peace on earth looks like in our unity and in our speech. Turn to our final song. Elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. And to one hope she presses with every grace indeed. Let's pray. O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Did envy, strife, and quarrel cease. Fill all the world with heaven's peace. Lord, this is our prayer. And Lord, it's something that's beyond us. But help us as you give us grace to do so, to unite as one body here, to live for you, to walk together, to fulfill the one another's, to hold each other accountable, to lift each other up when we're down. Pray that you'll be glorified and we submit to the authority of your son who is the head of the church. Help us to see we are just weak. We are not wise. We need you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.